Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Nikki. I'm an alcoholic. What an introduction. Um, Okay, so I'm nervous. Uh, My sobriety date is July 27, 2009. I have a home group. We meet on this night um, at 7.30 at High Park Methodist. It's the young people's group. So if you're ever not here, uh, you're welcome to check it out. And um, I have a sponsor that I use, and I sponsor a few girls. And um, I don't know. It's it's a privilege to be here. And I love Toby as much as he loves me. And my ego is, like, that big from what he just said right now. And, you know, like, the truth is, is that a lot of stuff that comes out of my mouth, I am absolutely not responsible for. And um, it's been taught to me. It's been said to me. It's been ingrained in me. I've taught. I've been taught and learned everything that I know now. You know. And um, and as soon as I forget that, my life usually doesn't stay going as well. And um, I credit all of my success in AA to the people that have came before me and and the relationship that I've gained with God throughout this process. And um, so I'm 22. I got sober at 19, and um, I drank for not very long. Um, I was born in Connecticut and we moved down to Florida when I was like five or six. And, um, I have two alcoholic parents who met in Alcoholics Anonymous and I was created. Um, I have a brother and he is an alcoholic. I have grandparents that are in 12 step programs and every person pretty much in my extended family and close family should be or is in an, a 12-step program. And um, a lot of the people in my immediate family are recovering. And so I've never seen my parents take a drink. I've never seen um, my grandparents gamble or overeat as they claim to be over at it, over Eaters Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous. And um, I was introduced to spirituality long before I understood it. And um, I used to be resentful about that growing up as a kid, um, not being able to go to church. And um, I'm sure if I had it the other way, I'd be resentful that I had to go. But um, I was always envious of friends that got to go to church and, like, learn a religion in a book that was based on something versus what what seemed to me like something my mother kind of made up and um, and believed, you know, that she was sober because of whatever, you know, and at the time, like, I really didn't care what she had to say. I thought my parents were stupid, just like every normal teenager, and um, I didn't want to listen to them. But they introduced me to a God, so I have no excuse for um, for being the atheist or agnostic that I was when I came in here. Um, I didn't start drinking very young. Um, I wasn't going to drink. I didn't want to drink. I wasn't going to do drugs. I thought people that did were stupid. You know, I didn't see the point in, um, in drinking or getting high. And I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what that meant, but I didn't want to be one. And I, mostly I didn't want to go to AA for the rest of my life because it seemed to be so controlling of my like parents and my brother's lives. And it seemed like this big to-do list and, and I didn't want to end up here. So, um, but as a young kid, I've always kind of had the isms and I think that I'm one of the people that's 
born an alcoholic. It doesn't, you know, I guess some people are, some people aren't. I think it comes in different forms. And for me, I think I was born with this disease of it's never going to be okay. It's never going to be enough, you know, and, and I've always just been 10 bucks short. I should be somewhere else doing something else, feeling a different way, happier, sadder. It's never been the right amount for me of anything, you know, and I've experienced that from a young age. Um, I've always been a hypochondriac. I always think something's wrong. Um, I have irrational fears that I act irrationally with. And it's been since I was seven years old that I can remember having these fears and, you know, just kind of irrational ways of living. And, you know, I was like 15 years old up until like seven to 15, waking up my mother every single night because I didn't feel good. You know, that's not a normal kind of behavior for a teenager, but that was like what I was doing because I was so uncomfortable with just being sober, you know, and I didn't know that at the time. But, um, I tried, I tried drinking for the first time when I was like 13, kind of just to say that I did it. Um, I wasn't going to drink, but my friends had an alcoholic dad and, and he was really creepy when he got drunk and he would like kind of touch us inappropriately. And I didn't want to be like that, you know, so there was just one more thing standing in my way of not wanting to drink. But for whatever reason, I picked up a natural ice and, um, we poured it in a cup and it looked like piss and I didn't want to drink it. Um, but I did. And, and I can't say that I expected, you know, some elusive feeling of everything's okay, but that's kind of what I received. And I didn't get drunk. I didn't grow up. I didn't pass out. I just kind of got happy, you know, and it wasn't a big deal. And, um, I didn't drink again right away. I didn't become an overnight alcoholic. I believe like this, this disease says in the book that it's progressive and that's exactly my experience. Um, every time I drank from the time I was 13 to 17, I got caught and I spent the majority of my teenage years grounded and drug tested because they weren't saving for college. They were saving for treatment and they expected us to kind of go down the path that they went down. And my brother took this path a lot quicker. He's three and a half years older than me. And, um, and I watched him go through the trials and errors of alcoholism and trying to get away with it. And he ended up in a treatment center at 15 and that was that. And uh, he got sober, and he didn't stay, but he was sober for three years the first time. So they had their whip down on me, and I was on lockdown to not have to go down the path that he went down. And so whatever that was cool with me, I really don't think I had passed this line in the book that they talk about where once you get across it, you can't go back with my alcoholism. And I took a turn in another direction. And I'm obsessive with everything I do. If it makes me feel good or wor worthwhile or happy, I obsess and I do more. And for me at the time, I was 16 and I found my first job. And my first job wasn't a glamorous job. It was a job at Boston Market, but I loved it. And, um, and they loved me and I felt important and I felt like I had a reason to live and get up in the morning. And I was always struggling with why am I here? What's my identity? And, um, I don't know, like I would journal a lot when I was that age and think about like, what would happen if I died and like, who would come to my funeral? And like, I don't know a lot of 16 year olds that are that miserable, but I, I seem to be just completely discontent with life. And, um, I was constantly complaining that no one liked me. I had zero friends because I had zero social skills. Um, most people thought I was a bitch because I always had a bitch look on my face and, um, I didn't know why I was looking that way. It just kind of happened. And, um, and I kind of put up walls around people at my school that I was at. So <clears throat> I had a boyfriend always. Boyfriends are always there. And um, he quickly became 
what I would have called a higher power if I had the words. And every emotion, every, you know, self-esteem, everything was invested in this one relationship. And when it ended, I went pretty insane. And as a result of the relationship ending, I had to quit my job because I was contacting him from work and my mom refused to let me contact him. And, um, I wasn't drinking at the time, but I got Baker acted for the first time around that period. And, um, I was 16 and it was on Christmas. It usually is on a, a very severed holiday every time I get in big trouble. And, um, I spent three days in a psych ward, and at the time, I didn't think I was crazy. I didn't think I deserved that. I thought I wasn't getting my way, and it just needs to be my way. I wanted to go see the boyfriend that cheated on me, and that wasn't happening. And and so I put my hands on my mother, and I cornered her in my room and told her she wasn't leaving until she gave me my keys. And, um, and that's just like the kind of behavior that I have naturally. Um, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to do what I need to get to get it. And that wasn't even drug induced. You know, this is just me plain as day. And so <clears throat> as a result of being Baker acted, I was put on medication and that kind of like gelled me down for about two and a half years. And I didn't have a lot of, um, outbursts anymore. And I wasn't as crazy, I guess, as somebody would have put it. So I was pretty calm for the next two and a half years and, I got really good in school. School became my obsession because I didn't have anything else. And I got straight A's my entire senior year, became known as the teacher's pet, um, did everything I could to get my grades up, and, um, and I started looking to go to college. And at the time, I was really resentful at where I lived, who my parents were, what my situation was, who my friends were, the fact that I didn't have a boyfriend. I was struggling with my sexuality at this point, pretty convinced that I was gay, and, um, and I'm not. And I was just kind of looking for comfort and anywhere I could find it. And I worked with a lot of lesbians. So it was like kind of by osmosis and, um, and that's just kind of how it went down. So when I went to college, I kind of picked the only school that wasn't going to check records because at the time I had a record and, um, I ended up in Tampa and, (laughs) and I went to Tampa, um, at the international Academy for a degree that I have no interest in, but it was my ticket out. And I stayed in dorm room style apartments with three other girls and we weren't allowed to drink. And it was a big rule. And even if you were of age and the first night, my three roommates are getting a captain, a captain bottle and they're sharing it. And I'm going to tell on them and I'm taking pictures of it and I'm going to send it over to management. And at this point, I'm still completely scared to drink. And I don't know why at this point I'm scared, but I just didn't want to drink. I thought I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I was scared to drink. Um, and I didn't want to get in trouble and that at, at the time kept me from drinking, but eventually it, it got to the point where if you can't beat them, you join them. And, um, I discovered pot and I became a daily pot smoker. Um, it helped focus. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed to be at the time, like my key to life. And, and when I, when I got into daily using and daily drinking, it, it was like, why didn't I do this before? Like, that's kind of how I remember feeling. And I grew up most of my teenage years just miserable in my own skin. And when I found this magic potion, like, it it literally felt like a magic potion to me that kind of cured every anxiety, every bad emotion, everything I didn't want to deal with in reality, and it just took it away. You know, and and that was like a slow process because I didn't want to become a daily drinker. I didn't want to become a drug addict, you know, and... 
it's in my genetics. Like, there's no – my parents met in AA. Like, there's no chance, you know, that I was going to beat the game. And that was my entire thought process when I was using was I can't, I can't get too bad. And so my idea – to control and enjoy my drinking started from the very beginning. And most people get to the control and enjoy when it becomes a problem in their life. But I knew drugs and alcohol were going to be a problem. I didn't know to what extent. I didn't know what alcoholism was, but I knew it could be bad. And so I'm controlling and enjoying my drinking. And in the process, um, I have a job, and I'm, I'm dating the manager, so I'm locked into this job for sure. Um, I'm not going to get fired. And he became like my babysitter. And what would happen is I would meet someone in the drive-thru because I was working at Burger King. And um, and we would go out. And I had no idea where I would go, who I was with, if they were safe. A lot of times there was like a big van. And we would just get in it and smoke pot, you know, and it wouldn't be a big deal to me. And at the time, you know, I'm like 90 pounds in the middle of Hillsborough County. I don't know anything about this place. And, um, and I'm hanging out with people I really shouldn't be hanging out with. And I'm putting myself at, at risk. And at the time, I really didn't care. Like, I was kind of on a suicide mission for a long time where, like, if I died, so what? You know, it'll be their mess to clean it up. I really don't care if I wake up. And um, and that's kind of how I lived my entire drinking career was I just don't care. Just get high with me and we'll be cool. And to me, that was my idea of safety. If you get high with me, we're good. And, um... And that didn't turn out so good for me, and I put myself in a lot of kind of life-threatening situations. One time I was being choked by um, a girl that I actually lived with, and I thought I was going to die. Like, I really th I felt like my air was cut off and I was going to die. And I remember after that kind of recollecting and realizing that I didn't really want to die. You know, and every time I have a near-death experience where I watch someone go out in AA or somebody dies from an overdose and, I'm, and I feel suicidal prior to that, I usually don't anymore. Because it's not that I want to die. It's that I want to feel better. And I, and I have no solution is what it feels like. So <clears throat> I have no God. I have no introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous yet, and I'm just dying. And, um, and I'm trying to get by day by day. And I have, like, one bill that I can't pay. I'm constantly calling my mother for more money. I'm constantly negative in my bank account. I can't hold a job. I'm getting fired and rehired every other week. And, um, and I'm scared. And I don't want to tell anybody what's going on because they're going to suggest that I slow down on smoking pot. And I don't want to hear it. And I know that. I know what my problem is, but I can't seem to stop. And, um... My brother at the time was two and a half years sober, and I would go see him every once in a while. Pretty rare at the end, but a lot of times we'd hang out. And he would ask me how I was doing, and, like, he would know exactly what I was feeling without even saying it. You know, because he was an alcoholic, and he's been there, and he never pushed AA on me. He never told me that I was going to be an alcoholic. He just waited patiently for the day to come and was, like, an example in my life of what could happen. And, um... And he was, you know, and there's a lot of, I guess, unspeakable stories. It's more for a fifth step, but I drank and I used to the death, you know, and at the point that I got to, it was die or get sober. And that's really how I felt. And I was going to kill myself or I was kind of come to AA. And I don't know where the thought came from. A lot of times I would sit in my bed hallucinating and thinking, I need to go to AA, and I don't know where the thoughts would come from, because I never went to an AA meeting when I was more than two years old, and um, I never knew anybody of my friends that got sober, but I guess the seed had been planted from a long time ago.
And, um, and I would never make the call. I would never tell anybody. But one day I did, and it was, um, it was in May of 2009, and I called my brother. And I didn't want to tell him what was going on, but he already knew. And I kind of told him, I said, I don't think I can drink, but I don't think I cannot drink. And he told me that he was going to take me to a meeting that night. And I was like, tonight? Like, <laughs> next week? You know what I was thinking? And like, a month? I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But he did what an AA would do, what I would do today with somebody that called me. And, uh, and I, he picked me up that night so I wouldn't get lost going to the meeting or get out of it or anything. And um, he had me meet him at um, his house. And he, um, and he took me to the club, 3333, at 10 o'clock on a Monday. And I don't know why I remember the time and day and place of where I let was, but, but I felt like I was so hopeless that, like, there was nothing that anybody could do for me. It was just a waste of time. And there was a woman in there that was getting her one-year chip, and I remember her kind of being a little inspiring. I haven't seen her since that day. It's kind of weird, but... um. I got pulled over um, coming back from that first AA meeting, and I told the cop I was at an AA meeting, and he was like, step out of the vehicle, and, <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck, you know, like, I'm, I'm trying to get sober, and the cop won't, you know, but whatever, and um, I stayed sober for the first time for like five days, and the next two and a half months, I'm in and out, in and out about Calls Anonymous, and I was 18 at the time, and I was so nuts, I was so hard-headed, you couldn't tell me anything. You know, and at 18, I can't imagine being older coming in. I thought I knew everything, you know, and I thought I had a way of life that needed to be kept current. And, and that so wasn't the case. I had to change everything, and they kept telling me that, but I wasn't listening. Um, I had a sponsor by name. I worked one, two, and three, meaning, like, she read the book to me, and I sat there and thought about other shit. And, um, you know, and my heart really wasn't in the program yet. But... I kept going to Red Door, and Red Door is kind of like a wine fest. If you've ever been there, people just kind of go and spew what's going on with them, and people kind of bitch about life. And I would go there a lot and, um, and tell people I hated Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is a bunch of bullshit. I want to be 18 years old. I want to go to the club. And, and I wasn't, like, getting my way. You know, every time I would go spew my shit at Red Door, somebody would pull me aside and talk to me for hours outside of that Red Door. And, like, kind of restore me back to sanity for the night. And the next night I'd be high, you know, like I wasn't getting it. And I thought I was in constitutionally incapable of being honest. And really, we talked about it on Tuesday. If you're able to admit that you're constitutionally incapable of being honest, you're not, you know, and that's the truth. And I don't know who said it, but it was like it hit home because I really thought that I couldn't stay honest and get current with people in AA. And I really wasn't interested in making this my whole life. I was kind of sprinkling AA in my life and, and bitching about why it didn't work instead of going to meetings as if it's my life and trying to sprinkle back normalcy back on top of it. And um, I don't know. I guess, like, I had a bunch of things happen to me in those two and a half months, and that was, the, that was probably the worst two and a half months of my entire life. Forget the drinking years. Forget everything in childhood. That was hard because I had a head full of AA, knowing I shouldn't drink, and knowing I shouldn't be getting high with a like with a solution at hand, and I wasn't doing it. And um, I would get high with a girl that I would bring to meetings, and she was my best friend. She was my road dog out there, and she would come and support me and sit in these fucking chairs, you know. And she would say, 
I want you to be sober. I think you look better sober. You do better in, in life sober. And I would say to her after the meeting that I really didn't like that meeting and it kind of sucked and I could just pick up a white chip tomorrow and want to go. She'd be like, okay. You know, and that's like I was misunderstanding every concept that someone threw at me and I'm trying to find every loophole I could to kind of do my own thing in AA. And eventually that friend had to go, the boyfriends had to go, the fact that I could only communicate with men had to go. Um, there were plenty of men that helped me in Alcoholics Anonymous and early sobriety, kept, kept me on the phone, kept me from going to the dealer's house, um, kept me coming to meetings, you know what I mean? Like this, the, that kind of stuff did help. And, um, but eventually I had gotten t to a point where it was like, I had like 53 days sober and. I was starting to catch fire with AA. I wasn't changing anything about my life, but I was here all the time. And so, circumstantially, things were starting to get better, because if you don't drink and you don't get high, life gets a little easier. And I felt great, you know? And I was, like, pulling people off bar stools, and I was, like, telling all my friends, like, you should come to AA, and, um, and everybody should work 12 steps, because that's the way to life, and... And it wasn't working out, but I had caught fire. And so my shares start getting more solution-oriented, and I start kind of feeling the love in AA. And <clears throat> I thought things were going good. And when I think things are going good in early sobriety, I'm usually very wrong. But I thought that my whole problem when I was getting out there and, like, coming in and out was I wasn't being honest with my mom, that I hadn't told my mom that I was getting sober yet. I was scared to tell her because I didn't think that she would take it well that for the last two and a half years I've been lying to her about where I've been and who I'm going with and what I've been doing. So I, I got up the courage to, to tell my mom, and I showed her my big book. And I threw out all these white chips that I had and on the counter, and she started to cry. And I was, like, so taken back by her reaction to it. And, um, and I know why now she had that reaction because AA is a great way of life, and I have an opportunity to live. Um, and I just thought she'd be mad and she was really excited for me and she asked me every day how long I had and she was patting me on the back and, you know, she was getting involved with my sobriety and then I moved back home and relapsed. And I didn't want to tell her that because every day it was like, you got 23 days, you know, and I really had like zero. And so I relapsed within two days of moving home and what happened was I hung out with a friend that I probably had no business hanging out with. And I realized after like 10 minutes of hanging out that he got high. And I, instead of being like, you know, I should probably just kind of go home. I just kind of rolled with that and decided that I could take control in this situation and not use. And that didn't avail. And eventually I guess peer pressure got to me. It didn't even come to mind that I was excited about Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't even come to mind that I had seven days to go for a 60-day chip. Like, none of that shit came to mind. And there was a lot of different thoughts that I went through with relapse. Sometimes I'd decide I wasn't an alcoholic. Sometimes I'd decide I'm an alcoholic, but I'm just going to ride this thing till the wheels fall off. I didn't do enough drinking yet. I haven't hit my bottom and uh, all the lies and justifications that I would tell myself. But this time was different. It was like the peculiar mental blank spot that I had over and over and over out there. And, and nothing came to mind to crowd me with, with this thought that I shouldn't do this. And I had no relationship with God. So I used. And, um, and I, it took me a while to tell my mom. But um, I don't know. It was my last relapse, and it was, it was like 
I didn't think that I was going to be able to get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought that I was really one of those people that was just going to stay coming in and out. But something happened to me on that last relapse, and I think I had done a step one. And when I woke up in the morning from that night with the remorse and the horror and the hopelessness and the guilt and the shame and everything that we talk about, it hit me. It hit me that I was never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to get sober. For sure. I know it now. I'm done. And that's how I felt. And I, and I ended up at a meeting that night and I was spewing my guts and crying my eyes out because I had to pick up another white chip. And this lady that I freaking hated in Alcoholics Anonymous was there. And, um, and she always talked about God and she was always bitching about, you know, I'm wearing too short of shorts and stop showing my tongue ring to people. And, you know, she was constantly like bugging me about like, living differently. And I had no interest in that. And I kind of like moved away from her every, every chance possible. And so this lady became my sponsor and, um, <laughs> and she talked to me outside of that meeting that night and she never goes to that meeting. She's like in bed at nine o'clock, but, um, she was there at 11 o'clock and I think God sent her to talk to me and she introduced me to a concept of God that I had never heard before. And it's not usually um, a story a newcomer says about, you know, their introduction to God was sudden and profound, but it wasn't so sudden and profound like the book talks about. It was just like, I finally realized that God is in me and that um, there's this little tiny piece of God that like exists in all of us. And there's that gut feeling that we get right before we do something bad that, that deters us usually. And, um, and I got that gut feeling that night and I, and I didn't listen to it and God was trying, but I was trying harder and, um, and I wasn't willing to listen to it, but she asked me about my stomach and she said, how does your stomach feel when you're about to relapse? And I said, it hurts. And, um, and I don't like how I feel and it hurts all over and my head races and I just don't feel right. And she's like, that's God. He's trying to get through. And um, I had never known that about God before. I didn't realize a conscience or, you know, like good thoughts that are coming in to crowd out bad thoughts were, were what I can call God, you know. And so that was my beginning. And um, and I asked her to be my sponsor that night, and I was through one, two, three, four, and 5 within the next week. And, um, and I was so scared to do anything major in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't really want to have a permanent seat here. I wanted to learn how to drink and go back to my life. And that wasn't what I was signing up for. I had no idea what I was signing up for, you know, but it was way better than what I had. And it doesn't sound like, you know, when I say my story out loud, it doesn't sound like it was all that bad. But, like, in my head, the pain was so great and so hopeless and so, un like, I couldn't get it together. I, I got no handbook for life, you know, is that that's how I felt. And uh, this girl helped me tie my shoes, put pants on, clean my underwear. Like, this girl helped me get back in order. And we had to sit down and write down a meeting schedule for me. Because I had plenty of excuses as to why I couldn't make so many meetings. And I work, and I go to school, and I have a boyfriend. You know, I have stuff going on. And, you know, she told me that, that I need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And hopefully, with that sunk in, I'll continue to go to meetings every day. And, um, she still goes to meetings every day and she's like six years sober. Like, I don't get it, but that's what happened to me. And I don't know, like I was so done with my ideas at that point. Like I just didn't want to drink, you know? And if she said jump, I said how high until I got a boyfriend. 
and um, and the boyfriend became more important, and I stopped going to so many meetings. And I don't recommend dating outside the room when you're new. If you're dating inside the room, you have a chance. But um, I started dating somebody outside the room, and I was sponsoring people at three months sober, and I was, like, on fire with AA. And, and this boy was slowly taking me out of priority. And, um, and I almost drank a few times in that relationship, and I almost drank a lot of times doing this relationship game. And I've been in a relationship since before I got this sobriety date. And um, on July 27, 2009 was when I finally stopped coming in and out. And I don't know, like, I didn't expect this to work. I didn't expect the fourth and fifth step to help me reach God. I didn't expect six and seven to start working in my life. And when I did my fourth and fifth step, like, I thought... Everybody has all these, like, great stories about four and five. And, like, I thought I was going to feel great. I thought I was going to feel rejuvenated. And finally, I belong in AA. And I felt like crap. You know what I mean? Like, I'm looking at a large list of character defects that I inhibit that day, you know. And it wasn't pretty to look at, you know. And that's kind of how I felt. And I carried that around with me. And, but that's why we started doing six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and 12 right away. You know, if I sit on any one of those steps, I'm liable to drink. And so that's how my sponsor felt, you know, and that's how I work with girls today is we go through them fast and Bill worked his steps in one day, you know what I mean? So that's kind of where I, I judge that from. And if you work the steps slow, work them slow all you want. It's not for me to judge. Um, but that's what worked for me, you know, and when I started sponsoring and, and Alcoholics Anonymous, I got like all the crazies, you know, like all the girls that weren't going to stay that were like... <sighs> Nobody ever expected them to stay sober, um, but I got to work with people that were just like me, you know, and my sponsor said I got what I deserved, and it, I did, for sure, um, and I got this girl that was like 16 years old, and she lived right next door to my mom. It was like really weird, the way that worked out, and I take her to meetings every day, you know, and in turn, I went to meetings every day. And I worked steps with her. In turn, I was reading the book every day, you know. And, like, that's the kind – like, she didn't stay. I have no idea where that girl is. But I took her through the steps twice because she relapsed afterwards. And um, and I just got so used to living and breathing the, the program. And it became my entire identity, you know. And at the time, I was, like – I was coming up on, like, nine months sober, and I got my first job, like, my first real job in sobriety. And my, my sponsor got me the job after, like, two and a half months of putting in 30 applications a day with no avail. And she finally said, why don't you come work with me? And I was so scared that I was going to relapse because of a real job. I had just seen so many people, like my friends, put jobs before AA and, like, leave. And so what I did was I got a service position every day of the week. And I have four home groups, and I have three girls that I sponsored, and I had coffee commitments, and I chaired four of seven meetings I went to, and I was, like, insane with AA, you know? And um, that sounds like a lot, and I probably wouldn't recommend any of that to anybody, but um, and nobody told me to do that. I was just, I was scared, you know? And, and that's so cool that I can run to Alcoholics Anonymous when I'm scared. You know, because before, if I think I'm getting too great for my own life or life's getting too good or I've got too many blessings, my first thought is usually sabotage it. Like, I should probably just drink now because it's going to get bad eventually. It can't stay this good. And um, and I'd have those thoughts, but this time was different, you know. And 
And I was showing other girls how to be accountable. And I was showing other girls how to show up for work. And and in turn, I got to keep that job and leave on good terms. Like, And in turn, I got to come to all these different meetings and have people know who I was. You know, and I was bouncing back and forth from South Tampa to Seminole. And, and I was everywhere, all over the place. And it was a lot of fun. You know, and, and I started to get involved um, with Vicky Paw. And Vicky Paw is the, if you don't know, the Florida Conference of Young People in AA. And if you know me at all in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's all I talk about. It's all I announce. But um, I got introduced to that when I was 30 days sober begrudgingly. And I didn't want to go to this fucking thing. And it was like, why would you go to a hotel and not drink for three days with 5,000 alcoholics. Like, that didn't sound like a good time to me. And um, and I got thrown in the car, and I got taken to Port St. Lucie with my sponsor and three other girls I didn't know. And, um, and it sucked on the way there. It really sucked. But um, when I got there, and I started to loosen up a little bit, I, I was loving it by the end of the week. And I don't think I slept for three days. Um, I had, like, ten Red Bulls a day. I, I mean, I was, like, running on E. But it was so fun. You know, and since then, my Ficky Paws have gotten less and less crazy the longer I stay sober. But it's always a let loose kind of weekend. And, and there's so many good speakers and there's so many people that I've met all over the state of Florida and Alcoholics Anonymous that just do the deal. And um, so we're bidding for Tampa and I'm always talking about it and we're throwing events and we're doing the deal and getting other people lit on fire. And that's kind of what I credit, like the fire that got lit in me was these conferences and this, this enthusiasm that, that exists at these places. And if you've ever been to a Ficky Paw meeting, I mean, it's insane. They yell and they scream and they stand on chairs and they're excited about sobriety. And like, it just doesn't seem like it would mesh. Like, why would you be happy about being sober? And, um, and it introduced me to that concept right away. And, um, I don't know, like I just kind of caught fire from there and we started bidding as soon as I got back. And, um, and it's just been so much fun since then, you know, and I thought, I really thought that life was going to fucking suck, you know, and, and a lot of times it did. And I was sitting at Starbucks till four in the morning when it was 24 hours and watching people smoke cigars and talk about AA. And I was just like, oh my God, this sucks. And it did like, until I decided that like, this is what I wanted, you know, and it sucked as long as I wanted it to suck was what somebody told me once. And, um, you know, I met my best friend in AA. I 12-stepped her at a fucking Starbucks at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, and she's been sober since then, you know. And and there's just been so many cool people that I've gotten to meet and gotten to be close with. And we are definitely people that normally wouldn't mix. You know, like, I'm BFs with, like, this 20, 20-year convict from prison. And he's got, like, tattoos all over him. And he's, like, the best speaker in the world. And I just don't look like I'd mesh with this character. But, like, he, he gets me. And I get him. And, like, just, like, none of this stuff makes sense. You know? And that's what that's what kept coming to my mind on Tuesday when we were here was, like, I don't know. Like, I, I tried to wrap my head around this thing for a long time. And I tried to analyze it and figure it out and figure out why this works and how those 12 steps managed to keep me sober and restore my life to sanity and give me all these wonderful gifts. And, like, it's not really for me to figure out, you know. And the less I tried to figure it out, the happier I was. And I've heard people from the podium share that, like, they don't have a God in their life or there's um, they don't buy into the God thing. And, like, this is a God program, like it or not. And um, tough shit if you don't like God, like 
find a higher power that works for you, you know? And I worked with a girl once that was uh, complained about <laughs> not believing in God, and she was a self-proclaimed agnostic. And um, and I had no idea what to tell her, you know? And I was like, tough, like, you got to find a God. And she's like, no. And I was like, well, if you want to stay sober, you'll find a God. And she was like, okay. And she drew a God, and she, like, was an artist or something. And she drew this, like, pink and purple blob. And she called that her God. Whatever. I have no concept of anything what she was talking about, but... Um, it was bigger than her and that's all she needs, you know, and that's all I need. And at first, um, I, I was able to look at things like the ocean that are like huge and like move on their own, you know, and, um, and I don't have any control over any of that. And I was able to kind of comprehend the fact that like, I'm not the most powerful thing in the universe. And, and that was a comforting thought, you know, and as time past my God grew and, and my faith got stronger and, and my reliance got heavier. And at first it was blind. It was like, I felt like I was talking to the wall and the words didn't seem heartfelt that I was praying. And, um, but God heard me anyway. I said every day for the first 90 to six months, like, please help me not drink today because every day I obsessed about getting high, you know, and I felt like it would never leave. And I, I think probably around my fourth and fifth step or maybe 10 and 11. I don't even know when it left. All I know is that I kept putting one foot in front of the other and Alcoholics Anonymous and eventually the obsession was lifted. And, and I can't tell you when that happened because I didn't do it, you know? And, um, and I heard this guy, Richard at Monday Madness say that his God changes every year. And he said that it won't be the same today as it is a year from now. And I don't know how much my God is going to change, but but every time I doubt God, he proves me wrong. Like every time, you know, like I got a, a sponsee right now living with me on my couch. And, and I think there's this guy that says God draws near to babies. And we're kind of like babies when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous because we don't know how to live and we can't stop drinking. And I think God draws near to babies and newcomers, you know, and there's been like a whole lot of weird God going on in my house lately. And it's been so awesome. You know, like people are asking me how it's going with this girl detoxing on my couch. I'm like, it's great. It's so great. She's doing horrible, but she's great. You know, and like, and that's all I can, I'm overflowing with joy because yeah, it does suck to detox and it's hard to watch, but it, it's so cool to see God like literally like take her in his hand, you know, and that's like kind of what I've been seeing happen. And, and I don't see that in my own life. I don't see that happening to me. You know, I just know that I made it, you know, thank God. But, but to watch like God kind of intervene where, where she's trying to like do what she wants to do, but God says, nope. And like, and she stays sober another day. And like, that's my story too. You know, I just didn't know what was happening at the time. And I'm sure other people around me saw, you know, the fact that I stayed sober is a fucking miracle because I did everything messed up wrong in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I have a lot of experience on what not to do, a lot of, lot of relationship experience of what not to do, you know, and people told me I was going to drink getting in relationships. People told me I was going to drink sponsoring at three months over because my best advice was like drink Red Bull. I, I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? And like this girl wanted to drink and I filled her up with Red Bull and she got drunk that night. But, um, that wasn't my fault. You know what I mean? Like she wanted to drink and somebody pointed that out to me. And, um, I realized like at some point I was like trying to get people sober, like a lot. 
and I'd like shake them into sobriety, you know, like that was my plan. And, um, cause I wanted people to get it and like people didn't seem to be getting it fast enough, you know, on my time. And I don't know, like I, my sponsorship in the way that I sponsor has been, has changed so much. And a lot of it had to do with when I changed sponsors, the way that I sponsor girls now. And, you know, my sponsor kind of held my hand at first through everything. And the sponsor I have now is like, good luck, get with God, you know? And, um, and it's been scary because she doesn't give me all the advice I want. She doesn't tell me what to do and she doesn't give me her experience unless she has it. You know, if she doesn't have it, she says, I don't have that experience. Sorry. Go to God with this. And, um, and it's been an, a really cool deal because like I haven't always relied on God and I've always kind of relied on sponsorship to get me through everything. And it's not that I'm becoming more independent, but more God reliant. And that's what, what scares me. Because I think it's me. Because God's not tangible. God I can't see. I can't really feel. I don't know where he is. But it's me and God. And I know that on a good day. You know? And um, I think, you know, trying to get people sober was where I was going wrong. And, like, nobody got me sober. You know what I mean? They let me go out. They said, you want to drink? Go. And that's what I did <laughs> until I was done. You know? And, um... I just hope that, like, I'm, I'm able to repay, like, what people did for me here. You know, I've had people buy me groceries and Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had people take me to work when I didn't have a car. I've had people do a lot of things that my own family probably wouldn't do. You know, and it's not that my family doesn't love me because they're very thrilled that I'm sober in AA. Um, it's just that you don't always find, like, the kind of love that you have here. And, um, and it's not at all what I signed up for. You know, it's not really what I wanted to invest my time in, but somebody invested time in me. You know, people sat with me and, and kept me sober, pretty much sitting on me, making sure I wasn't going to drink. And I don't know, it's been one miracle after another. And, and sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I miss the miracles because I'm blocked myself or what I'm not getting or what I deserve. And, you know, like hanging out with people that are new is like the best medicine. Because they're so nuts, you know, and, like, God is entering their lives slowly. And and it's like, thank God, you know, because I can't do it. I can't get people sober. And, and somebody told me, you know, you can't say something wrong to somebody that wants to be here. And you can't say something right that some, to somebody that doesn't want to be here. And that was so true, you know, because I would, I would go to Red Door and get great advice when that's really like a wine fest. But I wanted to be here. So everything sounded great, you know, and... um I don't think meeting makers make it. I think people that find a relationship with God and work the steps and make this their life for a little while get it, you know. And um, and I've tapered off a little bit from um, four home groups and 12,000 sponsees, but it's it's been a good process for me to learn how to balance life because if I balance here, everything else kind of works out, you know. And um, my brother told me one time when I was on my way out the door, he said, if you put God in AA first, everything else will work out. And I've never forgotten that. And he drew it on a piece of paper. He's like, write down everything that's important. And he put it in a box. And he put AA and God above it. And he's like, that's how it needs to be. And that's how it is. And that's how it has to stay. Or else I don't have this anymore. I don't have anything. So that's all I got.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.